The federal liberals uh, made the decision, uh, well, in fact, going back even to 2020, that they were really going to focus on gun control, that they were going to make that one of their centerpiece issues. So we got the announcement uh, just over two years ago, two and a half years ago, I guess now, uh, for example, the government was going to ban so-called assault-style firearms. We then got the announcement uh, that the federal government was going to target handguns. Now, initially, they said they were going to give municipalities the ability to ban handguns, which was a very odd policy approach. And then earlier this year, back in May, the government announced that they were going to implement a freeze on handgun sales. It was going to freeze the number of handguns, they say, that were in the hands of Canadians. Now, it's unclear exactly what that's supposed to achieve. But this was the weird aspect of it. This was announced in May. The government announced that the freeze would take effect six months later. So it's not hard to imagine what might transpire when you announce that in six months, the sale of something is going to be prohibited. What's going to transpire over those ensuing six months where it's not? So a policy that was supposed to result in a freeze in the number of handguns in private hands ultimately drove up handgun sales put more guns into private hands. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing, as I would see it, uh, if we're talking about legal, licensed, responsible firearms owners, but it certainly seems to contradict the government's own rhetoric. So joining us to, to help us understand the context of the impact of this announcement and what the last six months were like for those involved in the retail side of things, uh, very pleased to welcome to the program uh, here this afternoon, uh, James Cox, who is the owner of The Shooting Edge in Calgary, also Target Sports Centre in the Toronto area. Uh, James, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me today. Uh, so what's the, the reality now? Now that the freeze is, is in effect, what does it mean for retailers? Well, for retailer, it means basically we have to tell customers that uh, they they can't buy, sell, or trade their firearms that they already own, except to sell them to a business that can hold them or turn them into the police or export them, which is really very difficult and expensive itself. Right. So, so it kind of puts us, uh, you know, us in in the front line of, of a pickle on a liberal policy that really makes no sense. Right. So you're in a situation now, you, you cannot sell handguns, you cannot import handguns. That's essentially taken out of your, your business altogether. Correct. Uh, so between May, when this freeze was announced, and more recently when the freeze took effect, what was the impact of that announcement? Well, when, when they first talked about it in May, um, all of a sudden there was, you know, when they said, we're going to work on this Bill C-21, um, they... They, they, you know, and they, they said that this we're gonna, we're gonna, we're going to eventually ban the import and the sale of handguns. We're gonna put a freeze on it. So it mm-hmm. was, you know, it was a buying frenzy. It was basically in that first week. I think we we sold out of all the in current inventory. Um, the issue, in some ways, is or double edged sword is, is that f- firearms like importers uh, into Canada and dealers like we have orders that go back two years like firearms industry is not a just-in-time industry you you have to mm-hmm. forecast you put your orders in and things trickle in so we still had right. lots of firearms in the pipeline and in fact uh, we as well as other importers had have paid large deposits on orders you know to, down the, down the pipe so things that we ordered a year ago year and a half ago are just now coming in but we put deposits down again like 18 months ago so 
and the, the firearms made for Canada are generally very specific for Canada. Um, like when you see the news articles about these firearms that, you know, in Toronto and things like that that are used, the first thing we, we used to look at there and go, oh, that, that's not legal in Canada. Like the firearm right. was never legal in Canada. Right. So so um, we have all these firearms that we ha- have to pay for regardless of whether we get them or not now. So you, you may still be receiving handguns then just because they were backordered. We're not receiving them. We'd have to pay for them. So these manufacturers oh, are holding our feet to the fire that we have to pay for these firearms. That, that oh, but you wouldn't be allowed sell to sell them. them then? Correct. Oh, interesting. So they're dead inventory, right? And there's yeah. no buyback. So we yeah. can't import them. We have to pay for them. Um, some, with some, some manufacturers, they've allowed us to just, they've allowed us to just forfeit our deposits, which right. is considerable. Um, so there's, there's lots of financial burden being put from a, a liberal policy onto the firearms industry in Canada. Wow. So there, there's going to be a cost to you and two other retailers here. Oh, there's, there's huge cost. Yeah. Um, we're lucky in that uh, Target Sports and the Shooting Edge are indoor shooting ranges as well. And mm-hmm. people who, who already have firearms, like they have their handguns, or people who want to try shooting handguns can still come into our facilities or into other commercial ranges and try that you know use their firearms or try firearms that they have in inventory. So the ones that I have, I can still use as my range guns. But I mean, when you think about it, there's 2,500 handgun dealers in this country, and there's only you know maybe 20 commercial ranges. So there's there's thousands of small businesses that you know have just lost a considerable chunk of their sales revenue. And when you take this in context of just coming out of COVID, um, you know th- th- this is a, a really hard pill to swallow. Yeah, no kidding. Let's talk about that six month. You mentioned it was kind of a buying frenzy. So between May and, and I guess it was October 21st uh, that the freeze officially took effect. How did that compare to, to previous years? Well, I, well, we were, our sales were up considerably. But I think you have mm-hmm. to look at this. We weren't told with this October 21st date. In fact, the minister met with the, our industry group and said that no freeze would take place until legislation was passed. So we were promised by the federal government that, you know, because the, the buying frenzy happened in May. And, I mean, we sold uh, basically in, in a couple of months, we sold, you know, two years worth of handguns. So we were cleared out. Both my stores, they were cleared out. We got more in, but it was a buying frenzy. But we knew it was going to come to an end, as well as supply would be very limited. So the supply had already died down considerably. So we don't even know why on October 21st they decided to implement by another order in council you know, an immediate freeze backdated a day because they told us, like the minister Mancino told us that they weren't going to do anything until legislation was passed. So again, it's another broken promise by the Liberal Party um, as to how we would be dealt with this. Well, that's the thing. I mean, what did all of this confusion and chaos get us? (laughs) What's your understanding of, if you have any better understanding than us, I don't know, but what this policy is supposed to achieve or what it did achieve? Well, it won't it won't achieve anything for public safety. Like that's the first thing. So they've been running um, the, the the security. There's a security council that meets and it discusses, like you know, that committee that meets and talks about right. bills before they come laws. So the SECU meeting on Bill C21, and they've had about 20 witnesses so far. Only two of them, and they're both anti-gun groups, have gone up and said this is a wonderful thing. The the all. All the rest of them, we're talking about different chiefs of police, industry associations, you know, firearms manufacturers, um, security groups. They've all gotten in front of the, uh, and I mean, 
even prosecutors got in front and said, this won't do anything for public safety, so please stop this. This is just madness. And so when you have such overwhelming evidence brought forward, you know, it just shows that this is just a liberal, you know, policymaking, but but it's to, to confuse people and take away from real issues like the truckers in Ottawa and, and real issues, you know, that we really need to discuss monetary policy, things, things like that. And so guns are always a really good liberal base support trigger, right? They get to, they get to then dictate what the news cycle is. Right. So what's the next shoe to drop? I mean, maybe they're saving in their back pocket an actual handgun freeze for at some point down the road. Who knows? But I mean, what, what are you bracing for next year? Well, we just don't know because, I mean, the, the, the problem is, is that so right now people who own handguns can take them to the range. They can go shoot right. them. And, you know, and so nothing has changed. So so it's another indication, I mean, that that this is not really a policy about public safety because every firearm that's in Canada right now is still allowed to be taken to the range and used, just as it was the day before the freeze took effect. Mm-hmm. But now they're talking about, you know, um, like they're, they're, the people who are anti-gun are talking about shooting ranges, saying, well, shooting ranges now promote, you know, uh, games of war. So now they're, they're attacking <laughs> shooting ranges in their rhetoric. So, so it's one of those things. We just don't know when they're going to stop, right? And also, right. too, is, is if they're willing to do this with handguns. I mean, there's, there's you know, 2.2 million firearms owners in the country. There's, there's millions of handguns in the country. And if they're willing to say that, you know, your, val- your property now is valueless, like they just turned all of the guns in Canada and made them worth nothing. Um, what's next for them to say, okay, well, anybody who owns a pickup truck, if you don't live on a farm, you know, that's hard on the environment. So yeah, diesel pickup trucks, they're banned. So you can park them in your, par- in your driveway, but you can't actually take anything with them, can't use them, you know, because it's good for society. You know, like, like there, it doesn't take much to, when they, if they start doing this with one thing, and they get away with it, that they just start doing with other things arbitrarily. So society in yeah. general should be really worried about this kind of autocratic, you know, banning and taking away or misuse of, you know, privately owned public property. So it's not unreasonable to think that shooting ranges could be the next target. Either handgun owners won't be allowed to transport their handguns anywhere or will just decide that, that shooting ranges are whatever, too, too dangerous to allow. Like that, may, that could be next. That's a legitimate fear. It really is. I mean, when you think about it, like firearms, like firearms ownership is super safe. When you think about all the, the, the millions of firearms that are used every year in this country with so little problems and incidences, and it's, it, it really boggles the mind that, that they, they keep, you know, toting out this as a problem to Canadians because it's really not. Private firearms ownership is not a problem in Canada. Yeah, well, we'll see what comes next. Obviously, there are more shoes to drop here, but uh, James, appreciate your input on all of this. Thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Oh, thanks for letting us uh, have our voice heard. All the best. Uh, there you go. That's uh, James Cox. Uh, so he operates, as mentioned, the Shooting Edge in Calgary, Target Sports Canada in uh, Gormley in the Toronto area. And so the impact this had on them. So, yes, there was uh, a real surge in sales, kind of a doubling of sales in those six months. But at the same time, they got caught because, you know, a lot of these are on back order. And now you can't sell them anyway. And so the manufacturers are saying, well, you know, you, you guys ordered these. You're kind of on the hook for them. So either you're ordering handguns that you can't do anything with or you're losing the deposit. Uh, so that seems really unfair. But at the end of all of this, what is this achieving? What is the point? I mean, I've never heard of a policy like this. 
What is this freeze achieving? I mean, even those who support a more, uh, more you know, tight gun rules. Like, can you defend this? Can you explain this? Like, what is this accomplishing exactly? It just makes no sense. Well, good afternoon, folks. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Brickenridge with you here on this Tuesday afternoon. Plenty still to get to in this hour. We'll get to more of your phone calls, 780-496-0063-403-974-8255. Some new developments concerning Hockey Canada that I want to get to. Obviously, Canada, Hockey Canada has been at the center of this ongoing scandal over their handling of sexual assault allegations. Now, we've had some testimony from top officials before Commons Committee. We've got this uh, investigation uh, ongoing from retired Supreme Court Judge Thomas Cromwell. So it's likely that some changes are going to come from that already along the way. We've seen Hockey Canada's CEO and Board of Directors step aside. Now, part of what has compounded the problem for Hockey Canada is a real lack of transparency. There have been multiple revelations, some of them from uh, the Globe and Mail, who we're going to talk to in a second, regarding the existence of large funds and how those funds were being used, and specifically used to settle sexual assault claims. In the interim report from uh, Justice Cromwell, he wrote that, quote, Hockey Canada is concerned that being seen as an organization with deep pockets could create negative implications. In other words, Hockey Canada has sought to, for a very long time, keep its finances out of public view to essentially prevent the public from knowing just how deep those pockets are. But in the interest of transparency, given everything we've learned through all of this, does the public deserve to know? Well, the Globe and Mail has uh, published uh, their results of uh, their investigative work today and uh, a story with the headline Numbers Game. And it calls for greater transparency. The Globe and Mail is making Hockey Canada's audited finances public. Nearly 20 years of records show how the not-for-profit became very profitable. Joining us to talk more about it is a senior writer and member of the investigative team at The Globe and Mail, Grant Robertson, much more at uh, theglobeandmail.com. Grant, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Hi, Rob. Good to talk to you again. So obviously there's the investigative work in doing a story like this, but there is that question, right, about public interest. Uh, should we do this story? Should we publish these records? What, what kind of conversations led, led to this story? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. Um, you know, since the beginning of the problems Hockey Canada finds itself in, we've always viewed this as a transparency um, issue uh, for them. You know, there wasn't full disclosure from the beginning on on the um, the sexual assault case, um, the allegations, and then how it was settled. And then what we saw in the summer was when they were asked at federal hearings um, about how they settled it, uh, where the money came from, those answers weren't very forthcoming. And I think that's on the record. And, you know, since then, there's been a question of, okay, well, why this lack of transparency? This is an organi- organization that you know, not only gets public funding from the, from the federal government and, and other levels of government, not just Ottawa, um, it also draws a lot of registration fees from parents and players across the country. Um, as we now know, that money was what was used to uh, pay the settlement um, on, on, on the alleged sexual assault that, that occurred. And, and so there are very real questions about transparency that is needed with an organization such as this. Um, and and what, what we noticed was that there's no voluntary disclosure on, on the financials from Hockey Canada. Right. Um, and, and you can get them from the CRA, but 
you know, not, not everybody in the public can get them. You know, we have ways to get them um, in an expedited fashion, but they're not out there and they're not disclosed. And I noticed when we went through the annual reports of Hockey Canada and their, you know, their website, very little information, very sparse disclosure on how the finances work there. And, you know, with these funds that we've come across this year and with, you know, the, the payouts that they've talked about, it really comes down to financial disclosure. So the discussion we had was, you know, this, this is something that because there's a lot of public money inside Hockey Canada, that this is something that, that, uh, that we thought deserved to be public because they don't voluntarily disclose it themselves. And, you know, some sports organizations do. It's not just them. Um, or, you know, it's, there, there are, it's not something they could disclose if they wanted to. So basketball, right. uh, basketball curling are two examples of ones that do disclose. When I asked them, you know, why don't you disclose your financials, they said, well, we don't have to. Uh, and so we thought it was important for the public to see, you know, the finances and how they look in their raw form. And you can go to the Global Mail website to see those. Uh, because, you know, what it shows, I think we... We and a lot of other people have been quite surprised at the the size of uh, of the organization financially. So let's talk about why they're they're so secretive about all of this. And and you know based on what they've said to Justice Cromwell and what Cromwell himself wrote, I mean clearly they I guess they they they're worried that it would make them more of a target. Is is that it? Uh, yeah, essentially the Cromwell report is such a key part in all of this. You know, he, he did his analysis of Hockey Canada this fall. And, you know, we could see in the, in the financial documents, even once you get a hold of them, there's not a lot of disclosure there. But what Cromwell did was go in and, you know, he had full access to the organization, better access than anybody had to do his governance review. And the questions he was asking and the findings that he had really connected a lot of dots in terms of, um, you know, we could see money moving around on the balance sheet in, in ways that we thought were interesting or couldn't be explained. And, and that, that resulted in some of these, these funds that we've reported about this year. Cromwell connected a lot of dots on that in his report, which is why it's so crucial, the work he did. Um, and one of the things he found, he asked Hockey Canada why the, the financial disclosure was as limited as it was and why you know, they, they don't disclose. And they said, well, that doesn't really work for us. We, you know, to paraphrase what the answer was, you know, sure, other organizations might want to disclose their financials for transparency. It doesn't really fit with our organization because, you know, we're, we're afraid of being seen as an organization with deep pockets because maybe sponsors won't step up with, you know, writing big checks or maybe it might be a liability in negotiations when we're in, you know, settling lawsuits and the other side knows that we've got a lot of money in reserve. That was what Cronwell said in his report, which was really an eye-opener. So let's talk about what these these uh, statements tell us. Hockey Canada is a uh, very wealthy organization. Uh, they have a lot of assets. And what's also interesting in these, these documents show just how much that's grown. In 2003, it was less than $28 million in total assets. By last year, that number was up to $153 million. So first of all, I mean, how and why did it grow so quickly? Well, it's interesting. You know, it's to be expected that Hockey Canada, among the national sports organizations in Canada, would be, you know, one of the biggest, if not the biggest. You know, it's hockey, sure. it's Canada, it's lucrative. Um, you know, one of the things we found in the numbers is just how much the, the, the revenue goes up when Canada hosts the World Juniors. It's, it's, it's quite a lot. 
Um, mm-hmm. So there is money coming in to Hockey Canada because it is hockey. Um, the growth of that money over time was, I think, what surprised us and surprised um, you know, lawyers, accountants, and, and auditors who also looked at, at these financials along with us. Um, you know, in 2003, which is as far back as we could go because the, the CRA doesn't keep the records before that, um, you know, they had $28 million of assets. That's grown to $153 million. Um, you know, they, they have $25 million of cash on hand now. It was about half that in 2003. Um, there's a key number called net funding reserve. Basically what it is, is, is it's, it's a surplus. It's the accumulated surplus over time from, you know, extra money that's, that's in the organization. That number has gone from 21 million to 143 million now. That's the number when people analyze uh, financials for nonprofit organizations, which Hockey Canada is. As a nonprofit, it doesn't pay tax. And, uh, and um, when analysts look at, you know, the size of those organizations, they look at net funding reserves. And that number has really ballooned over the past, you know, almost 20 years. You know, the, the government funding has gone up as well from uh, $2 million in 2003 up to about $10 million in the most recent uh, statements. So that, that's a small percentage, I guess, of Hockey Canada's overall assets. But it does beg the question of why is there? Why do they need government funding? Mm-hmm. It, it shows you two things. Yeah. One, you know, when, when the government suspended their uh, – when Ottawa suspended its portion of the funding, they, they get money from all levels of government. But when Ottawa suspended its portion of the funding – um, you know, it was it was perhaps a symbolic move this year because you know it's mm-hmm. you know it's such a small part of their balance sheet. But on the other hand, it has risen over the years along with all the other numbers. So it sort of shows you that everything has been going up, and the organization has been getting bigger over the years. And really, you know, money has sort of been rolling in from all fronts. And I guess at the end of the day, I mean, this isn't to say that, you know, Hockey Canada should only have a certain level of assets. It's not about what that number is. It really is about the transparency side, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's about transparency. You know, um, you know, some of the financial experts who looked at this, really one of the points they made was, you know, how can you have $153 million of assets on your books and not have to disclose that to Canadians or not have right. to provide details about that? especially if you're an organization with public money coming into it. Um, so that's sort of point one. Uh, point two, you know, on, to your point about the numbers is, um, yes, it's, you know, it, it's, it's a question of how much an organization needs. And really, you know, Cromwell raised this in his report, and some of the financial experts who have gone through the books have raised this as well, which is, are these surpluses that Hockey Canada keeps excessive? Because, you know, as a nonprofit, yes, you, you keep a surplus around, um, you know, for, for a rainy day, essentially. Um, you know, you're not, you're not sort of hopefully having a, a zero balance, but you're keeping some money around. But is the money that they keep around excessive? And, you know, Cromwell essentially asks questions in terms of uh, reserves that they keep for insurance. They, they say we keep reserves for liabilities, you know, if we face lawsuits or something like that. And he couldn't make the math work on why they needed such extensive reserves. And he talked to their auditors, and their auditors said, 
we think the the reserves are excessive as well. And some of the people we talked to agreed with the auditors and said, there's a lot more money here than for what they say they needed for, essentially. So when you look at how much money um, an organization needs, yes, every organization needs a surplus. The question Cromwell and others were asking was, how much is too much, essentially? It's an interesting, important question. As mentioned, uh, much more, including these documents, at theglobeandmail.com. Grant, thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate it. Thanks again. All the best. Uh, That is Grant Robertson, a senior writer at the Globe and Mail, a member of their investigative team, so doing a lot of work on on this story. Uh, The headline, Numbers Game. So nearly 20 years of records that the Globe and Mail has obtained and decided in the interest uh, of transparency for the public interest, uh, they're going to make these documents public. So it is interesting to see, you know, the amount of assets Hockey Canada has accumulated. Now, again, no one's suggesting that someone's getting rich off of all of this. That has nothing to do with any of this. It's not going into somebody's pockets. But why are those assets as, as large as they are? Is that what Hockey Canada needs? And why have they been so secretive about all of this? Immigration is not just good for our economy, it's essential. We can't get by without it. Canada has experienced one of the strongest economic recoveries from the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Yet still, there's challenges. Uh, The reality is you don't need to uh, dig into the stats to understand that there was a a million jobs available in the Canadian economy. You need to walk down Main Street of any community in Canada. You're going to see help wanted signs in the window. This is the economic context that we're living through right now. That's Federal Immigration Minister Sean Fraser today talking about Ottawa's plan to increase immigration targets, a goal of 500,000 per year by 2025. Uh, and while there's a bit of uh, back padding going on there in terms of Canada's economic situation, there's an underlying truth in all of that that, yes, uh, we do need more workers. We do need to grow our workforce. We are going to need to grow our tax base in the years ahead. And so there's an economic imperative to immigration. And obviously, Canada has long taken the approach that we will prioritize economic issues. We'll prioritize economic skills when it comes to immigration. Coincidentally enough, uh, the Calgary Chamber today releasing the first of its four-part series, Unlocking Our Talent Potential, Refining Our Immigration Policies to Grow Our Talent Pool. Uh, talking about these labor shortages, talking about how immigration is critical in addressing all of this. So joining us uh, for some some thoughts on how we uh, move forward here, what kind of priorities we need to set when it comes to immigration. Very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, Deborah Yedlin, President and CEO of the Calgary Chamber of Commerce, calgarychamber.com. Uh, for more, Deborah, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Okay, so yeah, as mentioned, this this coincides with the announcement today from the the federal government. What, what did you make of the announcement, first of all? Well, we obviously welcomed the announcement. It was something we weren't expecting they'd be announcing today. So sometimes you're sometimes timing is everything. And so the yeah. release of our our report today, dovetailing with the like a federal government's announcement, is is great. We're really really happy to see those new targets announced because, as we've said, immigration is so important to addressing the talent shortage that every business. Uh, is facing across the country, whether you're in the service sector, the tech sector, the energy sector, the healthcare sector, everybody's looking for that last unit of labor. Why is that, though? I mean, why, why did we get into this situation? Well, it's a number of things. First of all, we have an aging demographic. People have yeah. retired. They're continuing to retire. That is a big part of, 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 of our challenge. The other piece is when you look at the highly skilled areas, we have not had enough um, individuals studying in, in disciplines to fill the need. We need to have uh, to draw on immigration opportunities 
from around the world in order to fill some of those positions. You know, I look at Calgary and I think about all the tech jobs that have been empty. You know, they've been posted and waiting for waiting to be filled for quite a while. And what it tells me is that we still are not necessarily focused also on the right programs within post-secondary, whether you're at a university or a college or a technical school. We have to sort of readjust what that equation looks like as well. So it's a combination of things that people and also other people and people saying, well, you know, I've done this for a while time to move on and try something else. Yeah. So there's a shift in terms of employment. It, there's a shift in de- from a demographic perspective, and we really have to think hard about how we are educating that next generation as well to fill the, the jobs of today and tomorrow. Right. And we, we may be just at the cusp of that demographic shift. Like this wave of retirements is, is going to continue. So th- this isn't just a short-term issue. This is kind of a, a long-term economic issue, isn't it? That's true. And, and there are a lot of people who have been criticizing you know, governments around the world saying, it's not like you didn't know this was coming. All you had to do was look at your demographics and say, we actually have to think about this a little bit more proactively. And nobody really has in the way that it has been proactive to address some of the challenges that we're facing right now. So it is, you know, in the energy sector, they call it the crew change. And it's happening around the world as people are aging out and deciding that they don't want to be in the workforce anymore. And they are in a position to do that as well. That, Mm -hmm. you know, that piece actually could change somewhat as people are faced with the inflationary environment and may opt to stay in the workforce a little longer. But that's probably a small percentage of the folks that will be retiring. Right. So in terms of how we address this, and, you know, there's the big picture in terms of what Canada needs, but also looking at it from an Alberta and from a Calgary perspective, um, you know, it's one thing for Canada to say, OK, you know, we're going to bring in uh, higher levels of immigration up to 500,000 a year by uh, 2025. But what do we need to do to ensure that, you know, these these skilled immigrants are are looking at Alberta, for example, or looking to come to Calgary, for example? We have to have opportunities for them to, you know, to come to Calgary. They have to understand what the jobs are. We do have programs that the, you know, the Alberta government has put in place to increase the the influx of, of people, particularly in the tech sector. But really, we have to market ourselves. And some of that's happening without us doing anything thanks to the Economist Intelligence Unit and ranking the city as the third most livable city in the country, in the world. But yeah. we still have to make sure that people understand what the opportunities are, that this is, and this is a welcoming, diverse, and inclusive city. We are the third most diverse city in the country. That's probably something a lot of people don't know. And also that there is an affordable um, affordability factor when you do come to Calgary. So there's, there's some of it's a marketing issue, but some of it also is we just, you know, deliberately have to target areas where we know that the skills are and to actively recruit people to come here. Which has been happening, but obviously not enough. Mm -hmm. It's long been an issue. I know the Alberta government has sought to address it, and it comes to you know, ensuring that we recognize credentials and people that come here with skills are able to put their skills to use. Do, Do we still have work to do on that? Absolutely. It's such a critical part of making sure everybody's set up for success when they do come to, to, to Alberta or to Canada for that matter. We need to make sure that, you know, people in the healthcare sector have the opportunity to do a residency, do a training program so that they can use the, the same training that they've acquired elsewhere in, in our jurisdiction. That means funding. That means the government having to create spaces, let's say, if you are a medical professional and you're from another jurisdiction, we need to have residency spots for those individuals to come and do a residency in their field, whatever it is, for however long it needs to be, according to the standards of the Alberta Medical Association. So it's things like that, that the government actually has to step in and say, we're going to prioritize this as well. We're going to have funding for spots. 
you know, whether it's in nursing, healthcare, physiotherapy, whatever it is, healthcare is one piece of it. The trades are another. We have to look at our technical schools and look at how we can make sure that people who come with those trade skills can also make sure that what they have learned can be applied and used here. Are there gaps? How do they get certified? What does that look like? This is a, this needs to be a government priority because that's the purview of government is education. This report also talks a lot about the importance of flexibility, like, for example, that we may need to at times uh, expand or change eligibility when it comes to economic immigrants. So what, what kind of flexibility are, 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 you know, is required here? Well, I think, you know, you look at there's some restrictive requirements around the need for, let's say, if you're looking at um, bringing in people who are not necessarily professionals or technically trained, but they're looking for other opportunities in lower wage positions. So you're looking at something like the Alberta Opportunity Stream, but there's a bit of a catch-22 because you need prior work experience, you need language skills. Um, it, that means that these programs are only available to a select number of immigrants. So that needs to change. We need to figure out how to make sure that people are, you know, the, the, the ability to come and work is, op, is an opportunity for a broader sector of the of the immigrant population than it already is. So some of those requirements have to change and we have to figure out maybe there's a parallel path so that um, people are brought in, they can start working and the other other bits have to, can be filled in at the same time. Yeah. What about for businesses? And you talk about, you know, empowering business, uh, you know, to, to make sure that they're able to do the kind of recruiting that they need uh, to attract and, and bring in talent. How, how does that fit into the strategy? Businesses need to make sure that the right agencies and whether it's government or, you know, agencies like Calgary Economic Development, Calgary Chamber, are aware of their challenges so that we can advocate on their behalf to all levels of government in terms of what they're looking for. So it's as much as you need to surface the challenges that you're facing so that we know where we have to have those conversations with at the government level. Having said that, this report really is informed by businesses and our members. So this is a step forward in terms of really elevating that conversation and making sure people understand what we're looking for. And it's still that labor, right. that labor uh, challenge is, is manifesting across all sectors, whether it's private sector, public sector, social services. It's, it's something that everybody is really concerned about. Right. And yeah, I mean, this is an immediate challenge, so it's unrealistic to think, you know, there, there's a quick fix here, at least, you know, when it comes to immigration, that this is longer term. So we do face some challenges still in the short term, don't we? Oh, absolutely. And so what does that look like? So again, we, we've talked a lot about what does the education system need to do in order to support the, the vacancies and make sure that we train the workforce of today and for tomorrow. How do we reskill, upskill and credential or offer micro-credentials to individuals so that they can um, sort of move into uh, jobs that perhaps they weren't trained for, but they are now given the capability to do that. So we have to sort of look at everybody in the workforce as being as productive as possible. And that means really having a few skills to bring to the table as opposed to one or two. Much more is mentioned, calgarychamber.com. Deborah, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All the best. Uh, that's Deborah Yedlin, uh, President and CEO of the Calgary Chamber. So uh, release of this report today, which just happened to coincide with the government's announcement on immigration targets. Uh, the report's called Unlocking Our Talent Potential, Refining Our Immigration Policies to Grow Our Talent Pool. So more immigration, but as she says, you know, going about it in a real smart and targeted way. So they've got some recommendations for how we can be flexible, how we can be targeted, how we can get the most out of this. But they say this is necessary. Part of it is as well, you know, growing and promoting our brands. Our brand is a city, our brand is a province. 
that we need to be the destination of choice for those coming to Canada, looking for those economic opportunities. So to make sure that the brand is where it needs to be and to make sure the opportunities exist. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.